Hi, welcome to the Murthy Law Firm teleconference series. We're delighted and honored, as always, to have each of you take the time in the middle of your precious day to attend our fabulous series. Today's discussion is on labor certification, perm processing. We're going to discuss legal concepts, a little bit about the economy, and how we at the Murthy Law Firm can help you all with processing of your paperwork. On my panel today, I have two brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys, Adam Rosen and Pam Janice. Uh, they are extremely knowledgeable as they have been working exclusively, working in the perm area for years and years and years. And uh, we obviously deal with labor certification perm issues and often connected with that are the I-140 immigrant petitions as well. One of the rules for procedure for the admin item that I absolutely need to mention but often forget is no taping allowed of this series. So if you're trying to tape, please hit the stop button right now. These are copyrighted materials of the Murthy Law Firm, and you do need prior written permission if you want us to, if you request us or want us to give you the permission, you need to request that from our law firm in advance and we on a uh, occasional basis will allow companies to do that or individuals to listen to it for a particular purpose. Uh, so without further ado, let's get started uh, with discussing a couple of different issues. Um, you know, it's a strange time in our economy. We've all seen, seen what's been happening since September of last year, actually for the last couple of years with the real estate market, the subprime mortgages. September, the, really the stuff went from bad to worse. But in spite of this economy, my understanding, Pam, is that we're still getting PERM approvals. Uh, and of course, every client always wants to know, um, you know, how can I get EB2 versus EB3? My company's willing to help me, so definitely we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're going to tell you how to be cautious, be careful, you know, look at the qualifications, um, you know, what's required. So, Pam, can you explain very briefly what exactly is the PERM process. What does it entail, and why is it important to follow certain rules? Thank you, Sheila. Fundamentally, the labor certification process is to determine that whether there are any able, willing, or qualified U.S. workers for a specific position. Mm -hmm. That's what it is at its basis. And so a lot of people are, I think, intimidated right now by the PERM process because there is so much unemployment nationwide but we are still seeing cases being filed every day and being approved. So I think that what's most important in this time is to remem remember that while there may be people out there in general looking for jobs, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that right now there is that specific person who is able, willing, and qualified for that specific position. So it's even more important for the employer to really think carefully about the position that they are sponsoring. Mm -hmm. What is it? What are you going to be doing as part of this position? What are its job duties? And what are the real world actual minimum education and experience requirements? Are there any special skills or tools that are normally required for this position? But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're not tailoring it to this individual. Department of Labor is definitely looking at these cases with greater scrutiny than in the past. And so it's very important that whatever the employer is filing represent the bona fide 
real world actual requirements for the position. Aha, and so that's where we have this whole issue where the individual says, well, I have a master's degree, please, please, please file it for me in EB2, or I have a bachelor's and five years experience, and we have to say, does the job, for example, of a programmer analyst truly, really require a master's and two years or three years work experience or a bachelor's and five, when really, when the employer ran the advertisement originally, or the normal marketplace, a master's is not required, and that's sort of the issue of the minimum requirements, the bona fide requirements, the employers not tailoring the requirements, etc. Correct, and there's definitely a lot of pressure out there being put on employers by their employees to be flexible, to be to to mold the position to be in the EB2 category, especially given the the huge retrogression of priority dates, but. Uh, Ultimately, the employer needs to remember that they're submitting that form under penalty of perjury, that what they're saying needs to represent their real-world requirements, and they need to be able to back that up with their past hiring practice. Do they have other people in that position in their company that was hired with less than that? Aha, uh-huh. so then that's why the companies are saying, well, that's why we're hesitating. That's why we're not very sure we want to do this. So are we seeing more audits in cases that are done with like an EB-2 maybe or? Well, there was a period of time from about September of 2007 until about March of 2008 where Department of Labor was regularly issuing audits for cases where the requirements were greater than what the Department of Labor feels is normal for the for that occupation. It was especially happening a lot in IT professional positions where the individuals, um, where the position was listing EB2 types of requirements. Okay. And those cases were being routinely um, selected for job, uh, for audits during that time period. We're not seeing the same targeting of those uh, cases, but that doesn't mean the Department of Labor can't issue an audit at any time. Even random audits, if the requirements are higher than the what is normal for that occupation, mm-hmm. the employer still needs to be prepared to demonstrate the business necessity of those requirements. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Pam. Adam, let's go to you because I think the other hot issue which often comes up and can create delays and problems is the whole issue of the prevailing wage. You know, the Department of Labor, the SWA, issues the prevailing wage and, you know, it's supposed to be valid anywhere from 90 days up to a year. Um, but what exactly does it, you know, how does the prevailing wage work and how can a company or business try to obtain a prevailing wage that's maybe consistent to what they hope that they're paying because everybody thinks that they are paying the right wage. And when Department of Labor slaps the company on the wrist or says, sorry, sorry, that's not the wage, it's kind of frustrating because they say, hey, this is what I've been paying for years. Well, Sheila, that's a very good point. And I think one of the first things that I, that I should tell our audience And what I think we often find from employers as being very frustrating is that they may have an employee who's just gotten the H-1B approved and has started working, and then they start a perm case, perhaps right away. Maybe they've waited a little while, and then they have to go ahead and request a prevailing wage determination from the state workforce agency. Let's say it's a company located here in Owings Mills, Maryland, and they request a prevailing wage from the Maryland Department of Labor Licensing and Regulation, and then they get a determination that says the prevailing wage is, let's say, $20,000 higher than what the wage is on the H-1B petition. Well, they get 
very upset. Why is this? We just got the H-1B approved. And the answer that we tell the employer is the major difference between the H-1B and the PERM process is that for the purposes of getting an H-1B, you can go to the Department of Labor's wage survey data that's publicly available online and decide on your own what you think is the appropriate occupation, the right level. There are four levels, so they may pick level two, and go ahead and select that as a prevailing wage. But when you get to the PERM process, you have to make a request to, you have to submit a formal request on the agency's form to the state workforce agency asking them to, one, classify it in the occupation based on the duties and requirements, and two, assign a particular wage based on the particular level. And so the, great, the higher the requirements are, the more likely it's going to come out at a higher wage. And based on what the duties are, they're going to look at what they think is a particular occupation. And so one of the first things that we'll look at doing in assisting a client is we'll look at the Department of Labor's own occupational data, and we'll see if there's a particular occupation that we think is more or less appropriate, and if possible, we'll include that with our request, specifically asking for a particular occupational category. Now, sometimes this Oh, so you can actually help and guide them to give a particular wage. It's always very helpful mm. to, guide, to try to guide them and suggest a particular occupation. And that's where having a good, more sort of proactive uh, legal representation can help because because you can submit some information to try and make and it can make sometimes it can make all the difference because you may have two occupations that are very similar or the the job might arguably fit into either of the two occupations mm. and you might be more and one inclined. may be much higher salary than the other so you're saying give them the one exactly point. exactly okay. and the other component of this is as well the types of requirements so many of the IT positions that the Department of Labor believes that, based on their industry survey, the maximum level of requirements that might be quote-unquote normal is going to be a bachelor's degree and two years of experience, Mm -hmm. or maybe just a a master's degree. Now, real world, a particular company, it might be a bachelor's degree in five years. It might be a master's degree in two years. But from the Department of Labor's perspective, that's more than normal. Mm -hmm. And so in that situation, the state workforce agency is much more likely to issue a determination with a higher wage. And so this takes me to the second point that I wanted to make here. The major theme here is when do you get your prevailing wage determination? Now, we at the Murthy Law Firm will, almost without fail, request our prevailing wage determination before any of the recruitment is started. And there are two major reasons for it. One is because the offered wage is going to be determined based on what the prevailing wage is. Sometimes it might have to be a little bit higher. Uh, It might be okay at a lower level if that's where you're starting before you get your prevailing wage. And when you get your determination, there may have to be some change. The other major reason is the fact that the life of your recruitment that you're doing is going to depend, and when you can file your case, is going to depend on when you've gotten your prevailing wage determination. If you get your prevailing wage determination on day one, and then day two or three you start your recruitment, even if your prevailing wage determination is good only for 90 days, the case can still be filed at any point within the one, well, it can be filed up to the 180th day that the recruitment is good for. But... If you start your recruitment before the prevailing wage determination is issued, you have to file your case before the prevailing wage determination expires. And in this economy, as we've mentioned, you might be concerned about and actually be getting quite a lot of applications from people, and you may come to the expiration date of the prevailing wage determination and still be considering applicants. Mm. 
And then most of these prevailing wages tend to be valid for between 90 days and up to a year on the high side. And yes. we're also saying that starting in January 2010. You're going to have to file your prevailing wage request for determination to the Depart U.S. Department of Labor's National Processing Center. The state workforce agencies, whether it's Maryland, California, Texas, Ohio, wherever, are no longer going to be playing any role in issuing prevailing wage determinations. And we don't know how long the new ones will be valid and how that's going to impact filing or strategizing and obtaining it, et cetera. Well, it's supposed to be, by regulation, it's supposed to be valid for at least 90 days. So at the very least, they'll be good for 90 days. But we have no idea how long um, they're actually going to issue them for once they get into the, the business of So you're saying if them. it's minimum 90 days, it could actually, if you're lucky, be even three months or six, I mean, four or five months or six months. It's certainly okay. possible. But again, we have, we, we, there is no guidance that's been issued by U.S. Department of Labor, so there's really no information on what they're going to do or how they're going to decide how long to issue it for. Okay, very good. And what about the alternate wage surveys that have been submitted? Is that something that companies do because it's, it's especially if they're having, I guess, an issue or a problem with the wage? It's certainly something that you can do and you should do if you've got that wage survey. The current rules under PERM are much more flexible in the kinds of wage surveys that you can use, but... The other side of the coin is that the state workforce agencies have been given much more flexibility on whether or not they need to accept the survey. It's important that the survey be one that shows that it covers the area that the person is going to work in and that the um, participants, the people who submitted responses to the survey questionnaires that result in the information that you're giving to the state workforce agency are wide enough in scope that the officer or the analyst who's looking at it at the state workforce agency can feel pretty confident that it is a relatively accurate representation of mm -hmm. what the prevailing wage is. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Adam. Sure. Um, coming back to you, Pam, we're going to discuss, I guess, a little bit on the issue of recruitment. There's a whole bunch of do's and don'ts and slew of what happens, you know, when the newspaper advertisements run, how long, you know, within what time frame the application, the PERM must be filed, the labor certification application, which again, I always make it a point to differentiate between the labor condition application for an H1LCA and the labor certification slash PERM for the green card, because I know people often get confused between the two. But there's the standard 180-day rule um, where you have to file it within 180 days of the newspaper advertisement expiring. The recruitment, all of the recruitment is only valid for a maximum of 180 days. So from the, it's 180 days from when the first piece of recruitment starts. And in a lot of cases, that's the SWA job order, mm -hmm. since that has to run for 30 days before there's then another 30-day quiet period. Okay. So the SWA job order runs for 30 days. Is that for professional and non-professional positions? Correct. Okay, and when is it? I know that everybody understands this, but hopefully, uh, and those who are new will appreciate it, when is it the two Sunday newspaper advertisements and just the one Sunday and then journal? Can you explain the different kinds of evidence that must be filed? Well, for professional position, for all prof positions, uh, professional and non-professional, you have to have a 30-day SWA job order. And for non-professional positions, you must have two Sunday newspaper advertisements. For professional positions, 
you can have two Sunday newspaper advertisements. Or if the position requires an advanced degree and experience, you also have the option of substituting a journal advertisement for one of those two Sundays. But again, it's only for professional positions with advanced degree requirement and experience requirement. So in a way, you're safer with the safe harbor sort of thing to do everybody just for two Sundays in a row? Correct. Okay. Um, for professional positions, you also need to have three additional pieces of recruitment, which you can select from the list of 10 that the Department of Labor has. And these are like job fairs and employers' website and job search websites, monster.com, hotjobs.com, et cetera, and even a private recruitment company? Correct. Mm -hmm. um, for college or university teachers, the employer can, in some cases, take advantage of a competitive selection process that they've already engaged in in order to hire this person, but that only applies when the competitive selection took place within 18 months of filing the labor certification. Otherwise, they have to go through the same professional recruitment um, for other perm cases. Okay, so instead of the normal 180-day rules, they give you an extra, almost a full year, one extra year only for universities and college recruitment because that's the real world where it takes as long to, from the time of interviewing to actually start the person teaching as a faculty member. Correct. And the, the competitive selection process needs to, uh, has to meet certain requirements that are in the regulations. For example, it needs to include at least one national journal. So it's, it's actually fairly limited, the number of times that that is applicable. Okay. And... Um, what about this notice of filing that we hear about, and what are the kinds of sort of common mistakes that we hear all the time that keep happening? Well, in terms of the notice of filing, the most common mistake that um, we see employers making um, when they come to us because their cases have been denied is that the notice of posting isn't, hasn't listed the employer's name. Um, it's an easy mistake that a lot of, uh, a lot of rookie attorneys make. Um, the notice of filing does have to list certain things, including the employer's name, and it has to list the rate of pay. Again, this is a mistake that a lot of people make where they'll list uh, a rate of pay on the notice of posting that doesn't match with the 9089 form or that doesn't match up with the prevailing wage. What if it's against company policy to post something about a job with listing the salary being and a offered. lot of companies have that issue. They don't post the salaries. The problem is, is that the regulation actually states that you have to list the rate of pay. And this is something that does come up sometimes with employers that have confidentiality issues where they don't want to disclose salaries. Um, what we like to sometimes recommend to employers is listing a range of uh, a wage range which is permissible so long as it is accurately reflecting what's on the 9089 form and the bottom of the range is at least equal to the prevailing wage. Mm -hmm. It can't fall below that. So sometimes employers who aren't willing to list a specific salary will be willing to list a range of salary if that's their normal range for that position within their company. Okay. Um, a lot, the issue of the employer name also comes up as a common mistake on the other ads. Um, sometimes employers will just say, uh, send a resume to this email or send a resume to, fax a, re a resume to this address um, or just mail it in. 
the regulations do require that the employer's name actually be listed in the in the recruitment. Um, also, an, the salary again comes up with a problem as a problem in some of the SWA job orders. Different states have different formats for their job orders, and sometimes it'll have the option of listing a range, sometimes it'll have just one amount, sometimes it won't let you list it in terms of hours. Uh, a good rule of thumb is anytime there's any confusion with dealing with those forms is to list in the language of the ads, the, uh, in the language of the SWA job order, the actual salary or the actual minimum requirements to try and clear up any confusion. Okay, okay. Um, that's very helpful. Um, Adam, coming back to you. Yes. Interviewing process. How does that work? Well, one of the first things that we always tell employers to keep in mind is that when people apply in response to the various forms of recruitment that are put out there, applicants who are potentially qualified need to be contacted right away. And the Department of Labor has defined this concept of right away as within 14 days of receiving the resume, which might seem very a sh very short time frame to some employers, but um, later than that, the Department of Labor almost treats that as though you've um, tried to discourage people from applying. Now, one of the important things in doing and scre screening your applicants is to make sure to see if the person has the basic requirements for the job that are listed and laid out on your application form, your labor certification form 9089. And so let's say the job in, let's say the job has a requirement of a master's degree and two years of experience as a computer software professional, and somebody applies for the position, and the job is a software engineer, and the person has a master's degree in a relevant field and has two years' experience as a computer software professional, but maybe not specifically doing the things that this job will entail. Mm -hmm. Now, what we will tell an employer in that situation is that you do need to go ahead and contact that person to see if the person is still interested in the job, what the person's salary requirements are, asking for business references. It is important to not disqualify that person simply because he or she does not state on their resume that he or she actually did the things that are part of the job. The so you're supposed to get clarification on gray areas if you're not sure as long as the person, the candidate who applies for the job meets the minimum threshold requirements as set forth on the PERM application. Well, it's more than just that, Sheila. The person actually would need to be brought in for an interview, whether it's phone or in person, and the Department of Labor will actually say, if the person can't show up in person, do it by phone. But the person would need to be uh, interviewed to determine if, the, if he has a, the knowledge and ability to do the job, even if their resume doesn't specifically show the specific experience with his specific duties. Now, but how would an employer check or verify the knowledge uh, of a candidate unless they have some kind of test or standardized test? Are standardized tests allowed? Well, standardized tests are, are, would generally not be allowed unless this is something that is a standard common practice. and it's something With that employer. With that employer. And uh, one of the other questions that the Department of Labor will ask is whether or not this particular person who is, if he or she is working for you, um, this, if this person actually took this test and passed this test in or as part of getting the job. And if not, then there's, that's going to be a problem in using a test to disqualify workers that apply in this, in this process. But if you've got, the, you've got those duties, and so the idea in interviewing them is to take those duties and 
um, often, you know, treat them as it's almost like a topic sentences. You're going to ask this person, if you were in this position, how would you perform these duties? How would you, you know, you're given what part of your job is working at an end client, and we've got to provide these services, and that's why this client hired us. And so how would you do X? You've got a problem here that you've got X amount of time to resolve. What would you do in order to meet the client's, uh, meet the client's needs, which is the reason that they've hired us? And so um, it, it's important to use this process. This is what Department of Labor is looking at to see if you to determine whether or not there are any able, willing, and qualified U.S. workers. Now, okay. if you've got, if you find somebody and this person does um, have that knowledge and ability to do the job and is able, willing, and qualified, then if there are multiple positions that are open, you've got, you know, m- three software engineer positions open and your advertisements reflect that fact, and you then go ahead and offer a job to this U.S. worker that you've identified. And if the person takes it and you hire the person, you can, you'd still be able to file the application. And for you file the application for this particular worker, and, and when, if and when the Department of Labor audits it and asks questions, have you hired anybody? You can say, yes, we did, but we had multiple positions, and so that's why we still had an open position to file the PERM application. So it's a huge advantage for any employer that's processing PERM to have multiple job openings or positions because then, even if there are one or two qualified candidates, hopefully the process can continue Definitely. In a way that can help. And one of the reasons I was actually asking <laughs> about the um, standardized test was because for us, for example, at the Murthy Law Firm, when we hire like experienced attorneys, we say must have minimum five years of experience as an immigration law attorney, plus we have a grueling 30 or 40 detailed, very complex immigration questions on labor certification, H-1B, green card issues, national interest waiver. And the reason is it is a standard process. And if someone comes tomorrow and says, why are you doing it? Are you discriminating? No, this is what we expect of every single applicant in order for them to be able to meet our clients' very high expectations of really smart, bright, knowledgeable attorneys. And so you're saying as long as it's standard and routine and done commonly, doing it for a candidate isn't going to harm or is going to be allowed. And what you want to do also, because keep in mind, once you, just like Department of Labor can audit your case once you file it before they approve it, Department of Labor can audit your PERM application within the full five-year period following the date you submit it. And one of the things that the Murthy Law Firm does for each and every PERM application it files is put together what we call the audit, the compliance file or audit file. And it includes copies of the prevailing wage termination, all the recruitment that's done, and related documentation that's necessary to, one, meet the Department of Labor's requirements, but also address some of the, the types of questions that might come up in an audit, like asking about a person's credentials. And so if you have a situation where, as the Murthy Law Firm does, give a test to applicants for a position, you want to have in there your copies of your notes and questions that you asked of the candidates, copies of the tests and answers that they gave, as well as the test that was completed by this particular worker that you're sponsoring. So that if Department of Labor does come to audit, you have that file there together and you can organize the documentation so that it specifically answers the question the way it's been phrased by the Department of Labor. Very good, very good. Okay, speaking extensively about audits, Pam, at one time I know we heard the statistic like 44% of every labor certification perm case was being audited. 
Have those numbers improved, become worse, better? Do we have any update from the U.S. Department of Labor? And what are the kinds of issues for which audits are being done? And how can an employer prepare, you know, a really good package to be able to respond to the government's, the Department of Labor's concern on, you know, issues because the, and the five-year audit, oh my God, it sounds like an IRS audit. It's well, clear. I'll, I'll just say this. We've seen audits by the Department of Labor mid-processing. We have not, um, thankfully, seen anything or heard of anything after it's been certified. Certainly, it doesn't mean it won't happen or that it can happen, but PERM has been around since March of 2005, and I would assume since we haven't heard of it, the likelihood is that it hasn't um, happened yet since that's the kind of thing I think that somebody, whoever got it, would um, bring it to the, the general attention of true. the immigration bar. Very true. But, you know, we used to never hear of I-140s that were previously approved now being reopened and um, opened true. And tr- out, out of the blue. And now we're seeing more and more of that happening with USCIS who, you know, three, four, five years after I-140 approvals are coming back and saying, oh, the company didn't have the financial ability to pay because they have 20 more I-140 applicants or the individual's credentials, which had been taken into account initially, are now somehow not meeting the labor certification test. But I hope you're right. And I hope, you know, as they say, from your mouth to God's ears. Um, so, so, Pam, let's get to the audit issue. What are the kinds of issues that we're seeing and, and how can an employer really try to protect themselves and the company in case of an audit? Well, like I was saying earlier, there was a period of time from approximately September of 07 until about March of 08 where there was a much higher rate of audits. And they did seem to be targeting um, certain issues, especially the um, positions where the requirements exceed what the Department of Labor views as normal for that occupation. And so the first thing that employers can do is pay very close attention to what they're actually answering on that 9089 form. And when business necessity is involved, prepare the answer ahead of time. Um, Business necessity can be several things. It can be uh, a a foreign language requirement, a specific skill set or tool or certification or license that is required for the position. Um, It's also when the requirements exceed the job zone. Uh, for that occupation. So the employer needs to essentially be ready to say, why is this essential for the performance of the job? It's at, at the heart, it's that very basic question that they need to be answered. And um, beyond that, the employer can provide evidence of what is normal for the industry, what other um, similarly situated businesses do what specific requirements their, um, their clients may have. Um, for foreign language requirements, are they primarily working with a certain group that only speaks that language? Um, so, but ultimately, the question is, why is this requirement essential for this job? Um, if the person could perform the job without that requirement, then there is no business necessity. So if the employer can't answer that question, then they need to reconsider whether that's really a requirement for the position. And if they can answer it, then they need to be prepared to document it, show that other positions within the company also have that requirement, show how it's used in the day-to-day performance of the job duties, show what the requirements of their clients are, show what um, what other businesses in the industry are looking for in the form of um, other postings on job search websites, um, what the results of uh, alternative 
alternate wage surveys show is normal for the occupation. All that kind of evidence can be gathered ahead of time and prepared in case of an audit from the Department of Labor. The other, a couple other issues that will come up in, um, in audits were, are the issue of on-the-job experience, where the position requires a certain amount of experience and the individual um, is unable to demonstrate that they gained all of that experience before joining the employer. The Department of Labor requires that in such circumstances, you can only use experience gained with the employer when it is not substantially comparable, meaning essentially that it's at least 50% different. So Department of Labor is highly skeptical of on-the-job experience, and they're going to want to see things like organization charts, um, payroll for the different positions, so showing a distinction, detailed percentages of time spent on different job duties, um, what other people in those same positions had when they were put in those positions. So, so again, it's really interesting. So it's almost like the Department of Labor is telling companies, if you've had this person for three or four or five years, you love the particular candidate, you know, the employee, whether it's an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor, that you're almost telling them you can't use any of this experience unless it's at least 50% different, and therefore you're almost telling them go find a job with a different with your competition because we're not going to let you use this person whom you truly have molded and trained to become this fantastic, super-duper professional with your company. It's kind of crazy. It is, except for when you think of the Department of Labor's perspective, which is that ultimately they're interested in protecting the interests of U.S. workers who are looking for jobs right now. And so if you could train this person for three years on the job in order to do this position, why can't you hire, you know, John Smith and then train him on the job for the next three years for that position? So I realize that it seems... Uh, counterintuitive that you can't be you know take advantage of your time with an employer to ultimately be promoted to a higher position that has higher requirements but you have to keep in mind that what we're dealing with is a labor certification here the Department of Labor is trying to make sure that US workers are not being adversely affected and the key is that the person I believe the, pr the, the presumption is that since the person was working on the H-1B status that that does not sort of that's the temporary job and now this is the permanent green card job yes mm -hmm. now the other thing that is coming up more and more um, is and it's coming up not so much in the labor certification context but actually after the fact it's the issue of uh, a familial relationship or ownership interest in the in the company it's just one question on the perm labor certification form and a lot of times employers will just glance over it or employees will just glance over it and they don't realize the impact of that question and what can happen if you answer it wrong because if there is a familial relationship or an ownership interest then that needs to be disclosed because if not the Depart the USCIS can issue a an RFE on the I140 or a notice of intent to revoke on the I140 alleging fraud it's a very serious question that gets to the heart of whether it's, a, in fact, a bona fide job opportunity. Aha, uh -huh. so you're saying that if my uncle were to file for me, that would be a violation of the law? I'm not saying that. He can still file for you, so long as it's a bona fide job opportunity that's open to all applicants. 
but he needs to disclose the relationship and be prepared for an audit asking for documentation of the bona fide nature of the job. So if my aunt or uncle owns the company, you're saying we have to click yes because of the familial or no because it's not immediate family members or is that a whole another discussion that's, for which we need a separate one hour, you know? I'll, I'll jump in and just say that's a whole another discussion. <laughs> but just to, to elaborate on what Pam has said, that in there is one particular case that the Murthy Law Firm handled and this is just to illustrate how a way to respond Examples and deal are always with good. a familiar relationship situation is there it was a small company and there was somebody who was not a relative who normally in the course of business handled all human resources matters and the Murphy Law Firm was successful in getting that perm case approved I believe because we were able to very carefully and very thoroughly document how this one person who had no relationship to anybody else was the one who always was and continued to be responsible for receiving resumes, considering applicants, and making the hiring decisions. Okay, very good. And I mean, I just wanted to come back to the question of the aunt or uncle. In a recent national conference, Bill Carlson um, from the Department of Labor specifically stated that there's a reason that they have not defined familiar relationship. They want to leave it open. So ultimately, the question is... So, but that's a double-edged sword, so it can a, help both sides or harm both sides. Ultimately, the question is, is it a bona fide job opportunity? Uh-huh. And if you consider yourself to have a, rela- a familial relationship with them, if you refer to them as a relative, then you should be on the safe side. You should be conservative and indicate that, yes, it is a familial relationship. And again, and we come prepared. back to the issue of penalty of perjury documents signed under oath, which are have severe federal criminal penalties if there's a violation. I know we're running a little short on time because we try to be very respectful of the 30 to 45 minutes or 30 to 40 minutes, and I think we're coming pretty close to our 40 minutes. And we did want to talk very, very briefly about supervised recruitment and uh, just the future of where we see PERM going. But, um, Adam, in like 30 seconds, can you give us like quickly, like a quick overview, you know, on what is supervised recruitment because that's something the Department of Labor has threatened to keep increasing in the they, future? The uh, Department of Labor has said that they will start with supervised recruitment. The supervised recruitment process essentially involves the Department of Labor issuing instructions um, for advertisements. They'll review the proposed advertisements and approve the advertisements and authorize their placement. And they will require a more detailed recruitment report and the resumes of the applicants before making a final determination on the case. The other point that I'll mention about this is, even though it hasn't been done very recently, this is something that did exist under the old labor certification system, and it was quite common for people to choose that route of going through supervised recruitment instead of doing your recruitment before filing the application. Very good. Wonderful. Okay. Well, I know most of you are aware that there's going to be ICERT, and luckily or unluckily, it's going to be postponed now till next year, till 2010. Um, it's already being used, the new ICERT system for H-1Bs and for, uh, with a lot more data sharing. But there's going to be a bunch of new bells and whistles on the form. Uh, we're probably going to postpone all of that discussion because of the time constraints. Uh, we do want to conclude, obviously, by telling you that you need to be very, very careful as an employer uh, to protect yourself and your company in, when you file a PERM application for the green card for an employee. But do not be afraid to file it in spite of the economy because there are filings being done and cases are being approved, but you need to use really top-notch law firms and who are careful and good. And, of course, without a doubt, we think we have the most incredible team with very smart lawyers who are very, very knowledgeable about this extremely highly technical and complex area of the law. 
Um, we often find that the, sometimes the labor cert will actually get approved, but then the I-140 ends up getting denied because the labor certification would have been filed improperly or incorrectly without checking many of the underlying documents, but never at the Murthy Law Firm. Unfortunately, we end up getting a lot of the phone calls or second consultations and trying to correct mistakes having been made. It's like building a very weak foundation for the house. We ta- and Sheila, if I can interject, we, and I, when I say we, I mean the entire Murthy Law Firm, take great pride in the fact that when we prepare a PERM application, we prepare it for approval not just of the PERM case, but of the I-140 as well. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And so it's like building a weak foundation. As an engineer, if you build a really weak foundation, nobody's going to know about it till you start building your rooms on top, and then the room keeps crumbling, which is what we find happens very often when it's a poorly prepared PERM labor certification case. And yes, it's been a tough economy with an increase in unemployment, which creates more work, and the Department of Labor believes that they need to be more careful in approving cases and in auditing and maybe possibly increasing supervised recruitment. But don't let it deter you, because when you have a really strong, good candidate, we think it's a win-win strategy. It's a win for the company. It's a win for the economy. It's even a win for the U.S. Department of Labor, because if the economy benefits, the Department of Labor benefits because there are more employees, and the world in general benefits for all of us. U.S. employers pay higher taxes, and the employees pay taxes because the company is in business. Um, certain financial sectors, like the financial industry in New York and others, have been having more problems, and we've been seeing that. So to conclude, you absolutely need a rock-solid team on your side, and we certainly hope that we at the Murthy Law Firm, Murthy Law Firm for the Indians, uh, can certainly protect you, guide you, help you, and be your mentors and advisors as you go through with, with this process with the number one team in the world on your side. Again, Uh, This is Sheila Murthy from the Murthy Law Firm, and I was delighted to have Adam and Pam on my team here today. And no taping allowed, and we look forward very much to helping you process green cards and to continuing to help you and your company as you continue to grow and thrive and succeed even in this environment. Thanks a million. Have a great day. Bye-bye.